What if I told you that the name Jezebel means chaste and free from carnal connection? That's how Fawcett's Bible Dictionary defines it. However, the biblical character of Jezebel differs vastly from that literal definition. No doubt you, like me, attach a meaning to her name in agreement with the description in Scripture more so than that literal definition. The Jezebel recorded in the Bible describes a ruthless, godless tyrant who slaughtered anyone who dared oppose her. One even gets the feeling of a wanton, sexually promiscuous person. Well, what if I told you that an adulteress like Jezebel became a leader and Bible teacher in the first century Christian congregation? The reality of her position prompted the Lord Jesus to write a letter to the believers at Thyatira, the place where she taught. Before we get to her story, a little bit of background information about Thyatira. It was situated in the southwest section of Asia, now called Turkey. It became a worldwide center for the wool trade, became famous for its dyes and its fabrics. Bible scholar Dr. Marvin Vincent describes it as a wealthy city, known for its artisans and home of one of Paul's disciples, Lydia described as the seller of purple. Purple is one of the more famous dyes produced in Thyatira. Although no biblical record exists about the formation of this body of believers in Thyatira, we believe it began as an offshoot of the ministry of Paul in the city of Ephesus, a town just a little bit south of Thyatira. For we read in Acts chapter 18 and 19, how Paul and his associates spread the gospel throughout all of Asia while living and ministering in Ephesus. So we believe that Thyatira began from their ministry in that city. We read about Christ's letter to this church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. And we read there this letter, and he begins with a self-revelation, a revelation of himself. We read in verse number 18, it says this, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Three things mentioned there about Christ. He's the Son of God. We read in the Old Testament, in Psalm number 2, that God, through the psalmist, describes the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, would be the Son of God. And then the Lord Jesus, when on trial for his crucifixion, before Pilate, and before the Sanhedrin, he describes himself as the Son of God. He is the Son of God, deity, sovereign, ruler, king over all things. And then we read a description of his physical appearance, eyes of flaming fire, And we read also about his feet like burnished brass, refined in the fire. What an awesome picture of the glorious Christ we see. And then we read right away in verse number 19, it says, I know. So the Lord Jesus knew the consequences and the circumstances of the people in Thyatira among the believers, in that body of believers. 
I know, he said. It speaks to us of his omniscience, his all-knowing. God knows everything, even things that might be even in, in secret. We, we, we think we're nobody's seeing, God sees. Christ knows and he sees. And then it talks about his omnipresence. Because of his omnipresence, he knew what went on in that congregation. And soon after he describes the I know, he says, I know something about you as believers. And he begins to recognize some good qualities and characteristics among those believers. He said, I know your works. They were a, an active group of believers. He said, not only your works, but your charity. They were generous. They gave to the needs of others. He said, I see your faith and your patience. Hmm, my, what a marvelous congregation, don't you think? And then at the end of verse number 19, it says, the last to be more than the first. Well, that could be either humility, putting others ahead of you, or it could be growth. They're better than they were. Their last, right now, is, is, is better than what preceded it. So there was spiritual growth going on among these believers. But right after he revealed himself and recognized these wonderful characteristics in these believers, he then rebukes them for their sin. For we read in verse number 20, it says, Notwithstanding, I have something against you. And then he identifies this woman that I spoke of earlier, this Jezebel, this woman, a false prophetess, teaching heresy and encouraging people within the congregation to follow her, her, her heresies. And she influenced them to listen to her and to follow her teachings, false teachings. And Jesus points to them and said, you let this woman teach. You give her a position of authority and responsibility among you, and she's a false prophet. She's not teaching the truth. She's leading people into idolatry and into heresy and into sexual immorality, just like the culture around them. An idolatrous city filled with idols. And Jesus rebuked them for their sin. You're letting her teach, and she's leading people astray. So he rebuked them for their, for their sin and letting this woman teach and having the responsibility and leading people astray. Soon after he rebukes them in his letter, he then calls for repentance. It says at the tail end of 21, it says, I gave her space. God gave this Jezebel, this false prophetess, time to repent of her sin, but she refused. She didn't repent. So Jesus now comes and he calls and he demands repentance. And he does so with that little phrase that we don't like to hear, or else. Repent or else. Verse number 22 says, unless you repent, then he describes the judgment that he will bring upon Jezebel and upon those who follow her. Great tribulation, he said. In verse number 22, there will be great tribulation. And then he says, those of, who are following her, they'll die. They'll experience death. Severe punishment and judgment against 
this woman than those who follow her. Or else. Repent, or else. And then after he points out the, the need and necessity for repentance, he then promises to them a reward. In verse 26 through 29, he identifies two rewards that he promised to the faithful ones. To those who are faithful at the tail end of verse 25, he says, keep it up. Don't quit. Don't falter. Trust me until the end. And then he adds two more benefits to those who overcome. He says, I'll give you authority. Now we read in Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of that chapter, when God the Father sat the Lord Jesus at his right hand upon his ascension into the glories of heaven following his resurrection. And it says that God gave to him all authority, authority over every rule, over every dominion, over every power, over every authority, including authority over the congregation of believers. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me both in this age and the age to come, in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth, all authority given to Christ. And somehow God promised through Christ that these who overcame and trusted to the end would participate in that authority. They would judge other believers and judge other nations. And then we read they would enjoy his glory. For it says he'll give them of let me read it to make sure I get it accurate here for you. Of the morning star. Jesus is called the morning star. That's one of his titles. And so these believers would enjoy his presence and his glory for faithfulness and obedience. Well, why did Jesus send this letter to these believers in Thyatira? Well, perhaps you've kind of seen some reasons why he wrote the letter, but just by way of review and reminder that when Jesus revealed himself to these believers, he confirmed his character. Sovereign, son of God, authoritative, omniscient, omnipotent, long-suffering we saw towards Jezebel, Merciful, did not judge her right away, nor the followers. The character and nature of Christ, he confirmed it to them. And then when he recognized believers for their good qualities, he commended them, praised them, encouraged them to continue on in their faith. Then when Christ rebuked them for their sin, he convicted them. He identified to them individually and within the congregation their sin from which they needed to repent and turn away from it. In his demand for their repentance, he corrected them, brought them into conformity with his will and plan and purpose for them. And then Christ promised a reward to them which would comfort them and encourage them and remind them of Christ's covenant promises, the future that awaits those who believe and trust in Christ. We see real quickly here, just in this summary, why it is that 
some churches fail. They fail because of false prophets, because of the presence of sin from which they refuse to repent, and then walk and live in disobedience, even though in some places they might have some good qualities, yet they refuse to be totally committed in personal holiness before God. Well, what correlation does this message have to you and me today? You say, well, that was hundreds, thousands of years ago. What is that bearing does that have upon me and my life today? It has a great deal to do with our lives today. Because all that was true then is true now. We find congregations among us, followers of Christ, that we could describe just like these believers in Thyatira. Active, working, loving, faithful, obedient to Christ, deserving of praise. And yet in the midst of that we find congregations in rebellion. We find even within some of those good congregations, false prophets, men and women leading people astray, teaching heresy. And we see those people following after them, walking after the false teachings and the heresies. So we see a great deal we can learn from the example and message that Christ gave to these believers in Thyatira. What implications does this message have upon your life and my life today? Well, let's presume for a moment that you are a believer, a follower of Christ. Perhaps your life emulates the commendation that Christ gave to the believers in Thyatira at the beginning of this message. Faithful, honoring Christ, obedient, loving, serving others. To you, I would say what Christ said to them. Keep it up. Don't quit. Continue on in faithfulness. Honoring and obeying God throughout your life. Perhaps you are a believer like Christ rebuked in this letter. You might even be a false prophet or false prophetess. Where is the Spirit of God identified and rebuked sin in your life? Could it be that you are following a false prophet or false prophetess? Could it be that, that you have, have failed to obey Christ completely? Maybe you have conformed to the culture rather than following the teachings of Christ? To you, I would say, what Jesus said to them. Repent or else. God always judges sin, and he will bring judgment into your life if you fail to repent. I urge you today to repent and turn from your sin. Don't put off until tomorrow what God by his Spirit encourages you to do today. Don't put it off. Repent today. Or perhaps you are an unbeliever. None of this makes any sense to you. In fact, you don't have any interest in God at all. You never have. And even now, as you've observed this message or listened to it, you don't have any interest in following God. I don't expect anything different from someone fully under the control of your sinful nature. 
every one of us are born with a sinful nature. Every person born after Adam and Eve inherited their sinful nature, complete with selfish desires, willfulness, disinterest in God, and worst of all, a chasm. We read in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned against God and, re- and ate of the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. It says they left God. There was a chasm between them and God. They had walked with God in the cool of the day, it says. And they had fellowship with God. But when they sinned, there was a separation. A chasm developed between them. And that comes to every person born after Adam and Eve. We inherit their sinful nature. And the chasm between us and God exists. We live a willful, sinful life in rebellion against God and His commands. To you, I would say, hear God's word to you. You and I need divine help. We are incapable of bridging the chasm between us and God. It exists, and we can do nothing to fix it. We cannot live good enough. We cannot provide any worship or obedience to God by ourselves that will satisfy Him and please Him. We need divine help. And God has made provision for that, for people like you and me. We are sinners. And we're sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. Because of the inherent sinful nature that we all possess, we sin. And we need divine help. And God has made provision for us in the person of his own Son. The scriptures tell us that God gave his Son as a sacrifice, that those who believe and trust in him will obtain and inherit eternal life. While in his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. And the life that he lived qualified him for the death that he died. And the death that he died was not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. Because of his perfect life, he could sacrifice himself on behalf of other people. And when he hung on that cross, the Father attributed to him the sins of people like you and like me. And when Christ died, he died on their behalf. And the Father saw that sacrifice And he accepted that sacrifice on behalf of people like you and me for payment in full for their sins. When Christ rose from the grave, he rose victorious over sin and death, destroyed all the works of the devil, so that those who believe and trust in Christ can inherit eternal life and can live victoriously over sin and over a sinful nature. God provides the Holy Spirit to come to people like you and me who need divine help and to give to us eternal life. That is a work of the Spirit of God. He gives us new life. The biblical term for it and the technical theological term is regeneration, a new birth, a new life residing within us, God's life 
living there, enabling us to trust in Christ, giving to us the power to walk in victory over sin. God has made provision for people like you and like me. I have experienced that new birth. I know what it means to have Christ dwelling within you and within me, and the power that he gives and grants to enable me to walk in victory over sin and to live a life of obedience and worship to him. I pray that today the Spirit of God will come to you and will regenerate you, will give you that new life that Christ died to give and provide for people like you. And I pray that the Spirit of God will enable you to see the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your substitute, and bring forth within you the faith to trust Him. God said, Everyone who comes to me through faith in Christ I will accept. Turn down none. So I pray that the Spirit of God will come to you today and give you that new life in Christ give you the faith to believe and trust in Christ, and to give you new life in Him. I pray that today you will call upon the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior.